0: Welcome to pilot episode one of Exploring Wellness, the podcast through which we have conversations about adding years to our lives and life to our years by maximizing our well-being. I'm Jason Gutman. I'm a wellness coach. I'm joined by family physician Oren Gersten and acupuncturist Zach Hagney. In each podcast, we delve into a wellness topic, often a challenge that many people face, and work together to share as much actionable advice for you as we can. Coming from different professional and personal angles means there are always rich opportunities for us to share insights with each other and to challenge each other with new perspectives. We also have a lot of fun together. Before we jump in, our disclaimer. All commentary made by Oren Gersten is for information purposes only. Good medical advice is based on a mutual understanding of a person's medical history and goals. A podcast isn't a substitute for the advice of a physician you know and trust. All commentary made by Jason Gutman and Zach Hageny is for information purposes only. It isn't intended to be a substitute for the advice, diagnosis, or treatment provided by a physician, other medical professional, or counselor/therapist. Without further ado, let's get to today's conversation on type 2 diabetes. Oren, how about you start us off with an explanation of what type 2 di- what diabetes is medically?
1: Yeah, happy to talk about diabetes. This is a subject that I think is fascinating. And uh, I deal with it every day in my job as a primary care doctor. So just a little bit of perspective on how big of a problem this is. Um, At this point in the United States, 10% of the US population has diabetes. And 30% of the U.S. population is at risk for developing diabetes. So the scale of this problem is just really, really big. It's affecting our family, our friends, and our neighbors, and uh, that's a, a big reason why I think it's good, to, uh, good to talk about it today.
0: It's big, Orrin. Is it also growing at a beyond a linear rate?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we're having new diagnoses, and I think one of the Uh, Most alarming trends is diagnosis of diabetes in younger and younger folks. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to see diabetes in kids, which is um, essentially unheard of. Um, Now would probably be a good time to mention, though, that there are two types of diabetes. Um, Historically, there was something called juvenile onset diabetes diabetes and uh, adult onset diabetes. We've kind of gotten away from those terms now because they're not very descriptive. Um, The terminology that we use these days is type 1 and type 2. And so type 1 diabetes is the kind of diabetes that is incurable it means that someone's pancreas does not produce insulin anymore it's typically diagnosed in childhood or teenage years Mm -hmm. and it means that someone has to be on insulin for the rest of their life Um, that is the less common type of diabetes for our purposes today i think mostly what we're going to talk about is is type 2 diabetes Mm -hmm. and type 2 diabetes is um, the diabetes where Um, people are producing insulin still, but their bodies are not quite sensitive enough to um, use the insulin that's produced. And so these are um, stereotypically people who are carrying a little bit extra body weight. Um, Sometimes there are folks who are not getting quite as much exercise as they would like to. Um, definitely there's an association between type 2 diabetes and the standard American diet or SAD diet, as we call it sometimes. Um, and so those uh, this type 2 diabetes is really the phenomena that I think we're going to focus on today.
0: It's interesting, right? Because they're, they both have the same name, but it seems like they're, they're very different in their origin and development.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, Type 1 and type 2 diabetes, you would think they were cousins or related. And in some senses, they are. The commonality between both those diseases is that people's blood sugar is too high. And so what do I mean when I say blood sugar? Well, um, everyone has a certain amount of glucose circulating in their bloodstream. That's the food for our bodies. Um, That's how our... Cells stay alive, that's um, how our brains get energy and so um, Glucose in your body is not a problem. Everybody has glucose in their their body. it's you know in fact, if your glucose was zero, you'd be dead. People cannot survive without glucose. But diabetes is a disease where people's glucose, goes much, much higher. So if an average healthy glucose is somewhere between 60 to 100, we start talking about um, diabetes, the glucose numbers go uh, 130, 140, and then up from there. I mean, sometimes we can see glucose in the thousands Mm -hmm. um, with
0: uncontrolled diabetes. Mm -hmm. So Zach, bring into the conversation your thoughts on how Diabetes is affected by the environment we currently live in and the environment we've evolved in.
2: Yeah. So, from like a, what we call an evolutionary perspective, is comparing the um, the environment that our that our our species evolved in mm-hmm. and, and and our DNA is uh, is adapted to, and the environment that we currently live in. And in relation to to type two diabetes, I think that the um, we can think about the the current um, landscape or our current environment as being an abundance of cali- calorie-rich, carbohydrate-rich um, uh, carbohydrate, carbohydrate rich foods that our ancestors um, saw, you know, once in a blue moon, right? Occasionally came across a, a, a beehive and found some honey or some type of, of, of fruit that was, you know... Um, Available for a short stint, you know, in in a in a season, um, but it was very rare for 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 our ancestors to sort of consume carbohydrates, uh, especially glucose-rich carbohydrates, um, in any abundance. And that's the exact opposite situation that we have today. the The standard American diet is primarily one of um, packaged and processed foods that um, have a shelf life and are able to sort of be transported from one place to another and kind of shipped around the world because of the use of preservatives and, and, um, and, and carbohydrates tend to have the ability to be preserved for a greater period of time. So mm. that's, and there's also some, some thought about sort of early, uh, epidemiology or in nutrition science sort of implicating the fat as a, as a quote unquote villain and sort of this. Mm. Anyway, that's another story. But um, the the environment that our genes evolved for, and that our and that our our species evolved for, is radically different today. And so, in terms
0: of food, for one, in
2: terms of food, in terms of environment, in terms of uh, exposure to the elements, in terms of the um, the requirements of, 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 of physical activity, sure. if you could think about, you know, there was you know, there was a, a, a deficiency of couches and chairs and uh, and so our, our ancestors really were um, lived in the wild. And
0: so movement would have been
2: part of daily life. Movement to, to hunt, movement to gather, move to uh, sort of uh, move from one location to another. Um, and then the exposure to the elements is another sort of uh factor that 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 are it was
0: unavoidable it was unavoidable it's part of day-to-day yeah, a- life exactly okay. so
2: we're we're living in, a, in an age of abundance and and um this idea that the um the issues that are really taxing our healthcare system and and becoming challenging for um for for families and individuals are is this idea of non-communicable diseases things that are not necessarily passed between pers from one person to another mm. um, through the advent of 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 um, uh, biotechnology and, and and pharmaceuticals, we have a lot of that under control. It's these things that are sort of um, under the uh, influence of our behavior, our lifestyle, our environment that are sort of. And, and I see from an evolutionary perspective, type two diabetes fits that that model quite well because of that mismatch between what our our species evolved for and and, and where we live, the environment that we live in now.
0: Interesting, yeah. So, from as a as a wellness coach, <laughs> I, it's playing off of that, I sometimes view type two diabetes, and this is going to sound like a funny term, as the perfect disease. And and what I mean by that is, you know, as a wellness coach, I help people improve their lifestyle, mm-hmm. and type two diabetes responds to improvements in lifestyle mm-hmm. remarkably well. Right. Um, and so I think it'd be fun to talk a little bit more about that um, that sort of mismatch between uh, approaches that are uh, approaches to communicable disease sort of being applied to non-communicable disease. And mm-hmm. and off air, Oren, you were talking about um, the disease syphilis and how uh, years ago, tell me how many years ago, years ago we discovered penicillin mm-hmm. and sort of provided a, almost perfect cure. Yeah,
1: I think it was right around World War II
0: when antibiotics
1: were discovered. We'll have to fact check that after the episode. But (laughs) yeah, with the advent of antibiotics, we had easy cures for things that used to kill people. So things like syphilis, bacterial infections, um, and then that's not even getting into um, vaccine preventable diseases too. But um, really the epidemiology has changed um, now that people are living longer and not dying from syphilis and, you know, not our early childhood death rate is much, much lower, now people are living into old age and we're dying from different diseases like heart disease, like complications from diabetes, like strokes. And um, those deaths aren't any less painful, you know. They're not any less sad for the families. But the difference is there are not easy answers. You know, with syphilis, you give an intramuscular injection of penicillin cured. With type two diabetes, you're potentially on medication for life or you make a drastic lifestyle shift. Diabetes that you have is, to
0: maintain for life.
1: That you have to maintain for <laughs> life. I mean, type two diabetes is being thought of as a potentially curable diagnosis these days. But it just kind of takes a mindset shift, I think, from, you know, as a doctor, from a medical perspective, you know, you have to approach these things in a different way. I'm not going to, you know, I can cure syphilis in my office in one visit. I can't cure diabetes in my office in one visit. And if I am going to treat diabetes well, I need help. You know, I need um Experts in nutrition. I need experts in behavior change. I need experts in fitness um, Pain management like all these things come into play. So there's got to be a team approach. I think to these these big chronic diseases
0: Well, and you know one thing I think is interesting is it's very easy to to gather around and say What's wrong with people that can't change their lifestyle enough to not get type 2 diabetes? It's also easy to say What's wrong with the medical system? All they do is throw pills at things. But I think there's an interesting um, hangover, for lack of a better term, because that stuff worked. It worked so, in your syphilis example, it worked so well. So it, it seems like it's human nature to turn to that kind of paradigm, at least initially.
1: I honestly think medicine is stuck like 20 years behind in terms of its adaptability. We often get stuck in old paradigms Mm. where, um, you know, yeah, there's a pill for everything. Well, that kind of was the case for a long time, but it's just not borne out anymore. Or, yeah, you know, a doctor can be like the only provider for someone and then, you know, they don't need any other health care. That's just not the case anymore either. So I think we need a drastic paradigm shift in how we kind of approach these chronic diseases in order to treat them successfully.
0: Yeah. And would you say that there there is a place for both medication and lifestyle in the treatment of these kind of diseases, especially type two diabetes?
1: I think so. I mean, I think there has to be, and I think the research would agree with that too. Mm-hmm. The question is how, because from a primary care perspective, you know, my just job description has been boiled down into this office visit where... Um, You know, an insurance company will pay for me to spend 15 minutes with a patient. How am I going to explain how to eat healthy to someone in 15 minutes? That just doesn't work. Or how do you take someone from, you know, not getting hardly any exercise to uh, getting a sustainable kind of movement program in 15 minutes? And so luckily in my work, I've been able to expand my job description a little bit to spend more time with people. But I think our health system at a whole as a whole is just failing people in our approach to managing these chronic diseases because of time constraints um sometimes imposed by insurance companies because of this kind of lack of a team approach because of you know societal factors poverty and you know
2: well i'm going to i'm going to be the acupuncturist that comes to the savior of the american healthcare system because the uh, the the scope of the job as you sort of described has gotten larger as we've sort of moved away Mm. from this sort of evolutionarily sort of past. Right. So if you think about the I don't want to use the term progress, but the the differential between the 1950s, the food, the levels of activity, the environment that we lived in to today, you see a sort of a, a sharp, you know, at some point along that curve, there's going to be a sharp uptick in these non-communicable diseases, diabetic, type two diabetes, is sort of chief among them, um, and and the, from a from a certain vantage point, you can sort of look at the food system that our our economy sort of rewards, right, and and that is um, more affordable, or that is um, that you might find in, in 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 public school lunches, right? Like, if if you can create a, a cheaper Uh, product, even though it might be nutritionally inferior, that's going to win out in the the economy. And so the the healthcare system is fighting this uphill battle in these non-communicable diseases because Mm. they are so complex, right? We're moving less, we're less exposed to the environment, and the food is coming from increasingly these processed, uh, carbohydrate-dense, calorically-dense, nutritionally-poor foodstuffs that... Um, makes the job of, you know, the doctor uh, so much harder because, you know, it's all the low-hanging fruit of, that kind of came in the forms of antibiotics and antimicrobials or what have you um, has been plucked. And so we're left with these very complex diseases that are a function of biology, lifestyle, um, um, the economy, the political economy. You know, you could sort of really extrapolate this out.
1: It feels um, like swimming upstream a lot totally. of times. Yeah. It's like, you know, you want to make headway on this stuff. And on the one hand, you know, you're trying to make time to talk to people about like healthy diets. But on the other hand, you're bombarded by ads about <laughs> fast food Yeah, and um, healthy food is expensive. Yeah. And it's, and then like family time is at a premium. Many families are working like two jobs. Yeah. And it's like, just a, so it seems like as a doctor, you know, you. My perspective is like, yeah, you want to make headway on this, but it seems like every step you take forward, there are societal forces pushing us backwards. Yeah,
0: yeah I see what you're descri- both of you guys are describing as. You're, we're asking, you know, the medical system, hey, can you can you help us with type two diabetes? And we're asking individual physicians and, and other wellness practitioners, "Hey, can you can you make a dent in this?" And we're asking individuals, mm-hmm. "Hey," or or suggesting you can live a better life and you can avoid this disease. But we're doing operating within a environment, to use a neutral term, that isn't conducive, isn't generally conducive to well being, and is highly conducive to these kinds of sicknesses.
1: Yeah. And here's what, and here's what people get told. And this is really frustrating. I'm sure from a patient perspective is just, um, eat less, exercise more and you'll be fine. Right. And Jason, I'd be fascinated to hear your perspective on that because as a physician, that was essentially the teaching that I got is why are we having these problems? People are eating too much. They're not exercising enough. Mm-hmm. But when you give people that advice that, you know, that's just not, I mean, it's not practical for one. And It doesn't work. So, what's your experience with kind of helping people put together
0: these plans that work? Well, you know, this is a this is a big question. Uh, Let me take a stab at just a portion of it. First, I find the expression "eat less, move more" to be a really loaded statement in our society. I, I, I hear a pair of parentheses. I hear people when they say to themselves, "I know what I need to do. I need to eat less." move more. I hear them saying, I need to eat less parentheses because I'm a gluttonous pig. I need to move more because I'm a lazy bastard. Does that resonate with you guys at all? Do you hear that sort of self-shaming when you hear people say this? I mean, I see people come in defeated all the
1: time and I have to imagine something like that's going through their mind.
0: And so, you know, I think an attitude or mindset or mentality shift is really important to think of it more as um, instead of eat less, I like to think of nourish oneself with food, Um, a lot like the attitude we think of with kids, whether they're our own kids or our nieces, nephews or or grandkids. We don't think of food as something to avoid. We think of it as something to eat so we grow big and strong, or so we can go off to school well-prepared to think and learn and do well on a test. Um, I think that attitude of nourishing oneself is much more conducive to real change. And then the similar kind of attitude with, with exercise instead of like, you know, sort of that scolding oneself to move more, I think it's really helpful to explore, um, to me, a straightforward question it took me some years to get here, but you know, what kind of movement do you enjoy? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can, if you can find something you enjoy, there's less of that game of uh, telling yourself to move more.
1: Hmm. What if people say I've never been someone who's been active or is there something that easy you can recommend to people?
0: You know, um, that is that is more common than you might think. Um, I usually dig a little deeper and say, was there something when you were in high school that you liked? And maybe there's something there. Uh, if there wasn't, was there something in your childhood when you liked, uh, that you liked doing? Someone might say, you know, I loved when we'd go on vacation and we'd go water skiing. And now you have an in, you, they, they like water sports or they like outdoor sports. And they didn't allow themselves to explore that because they had in their mind that exercise meant going to the gym. Mm-hmm. Exercise meant lifting weights or exercise meant um, some sort of stamina exercise like swimming or cycling or running or rowing or something like that. And they didn't think that uh, other activity was an option. Um, so I'm pretty stubborn about that. I, I think um, I think humans are, are sort of evolved to move. I think there's, we, most people enjoy some movement. You know, one piece of evidence I use for this is you can take someone who was sedentary for their entire adulthood and then they go to a retirement community and what do they do with their time off? They play golf or they play shuffleboard or they go to the pool. People I think naturally like to do stuff, but I think it's, gets drowned out by work pressures, family pressures uh, and somewhat of the residue of sort of a no pain no gain attitude. So, if it's going to have to hurt, maybe my life's got enough hurt already. Right. You know, raising three kids or sure. running a business. Uh, does that make sense?
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, it, it, there's there's a there's an unavoidable sort of quality that we're talking about in terms of like behavior change, right? And that is notoriously difficult, right? To you know, if any study sort of of any kind of um, whether it's CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, it's probably like the best study that I'm aware of. But any of these other forms of of try to behavior modification are really challenging. Yeah. Like, look after, at smoking.
1: Like, after you hit like 20 or 25, people just don't. It's very hard to change habits. <laughs> it's very char-
2: hard to change habits, right? Yeah. So we're deal- So even though we're talking about type two diabetes, which is a function of of um, you know pancreatic function and blood sugar, you can't escape this sort of implication of 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 one's you know consciousness or decision making or um self-value self-worth self-appreciation like these things like are are and 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 this is what kind of lends credence to the fact that it's such a challenging you know these non-communicable diseases you know in some way come back to the environment that you're living in and the forces that are creating that environment whether it's economic political um, vocationally, um, and then, and then like the internal milieu of one's own capacity to, for,
1: for self-acceptance or, Mm. um, it's uh, all there and it's so complicated. Yeah. Like if there was an easy fix, we would have fixed it already. Right. And the other problem that the other knock that I have on the, you know, eat less, exercise more, is it just boils down human physiology into a form that um kind of underappreciates how complex we are as organisms absolutely and i think it kind of gets back to what you were saying earlier zach in that you know we've evolved in these ways to kind of be adapted to famine and Mm -hmm. you know different food sources and i think it's really interesting looking at the genetics too different ancestries have different predispositions to uh, type 2 diabetes if you look at native americans the genetics there is, makes them just super predisposed uh, Mm to develop some of these um, diseases. And so you look at a reservation and the incidence of um, diabetes is just way, diabetes and obesity is just way, way higher. Mm -hmm. And um, some of it um, has to do with um, societal and economic factors, but some of it has to do with genetics too. So when you're looking at a solution to a problem that has genetic underpinnings, but also like stress and um, you know economic underpinnings. There's not a one size fits yeah. all solution. You kind of have to look at the person sitting in front of you, try and think about them as a whole person and then come up with a plan that works for them.
0: Absolutely, there's, there's so much there. I think one thing I wanna jump in and add is, and this is not to, to throw my hands up in the air and say there's nothing we can do about this because we all know there's plenty that can be done about this and that we help people with this on a regular basis. But to describe the scope of the challenge is interesting. So today, to get for the average person to get a good amount of exercise in their week, to eat the highest quality of food, they have to do things like get up at five o'clock in the morning to go to a gym that they have the money to pay for a membership to. Mm -hmm. And they have to have the money to go shop at the better markets that have unprocessed food. They have to have the time to prepare that food or the money to have someone prepare that food for them. Um, So I think that's probably a good place to stop there. But in the environment we evolved in that you were talking about earlier, Zach, I sometimes joke it, it was something like every person ate food that was better than you could buy at Whole Foods, mm-hmm. right? Because all food was organic, all you know, plant food was organic, and all Fresh, all animal seasonal, food was local. was wild, yeah. right? And so it was the best food. Uh, every day was a family reunion. Yeah. Like you lived with a tribe of 150 people that were your right. cousins and uncles and sisters and kids, right? In the most in in nature, right? So you were in like what people pay big bucks to go on to go to Lake Tahoe or yeah. or, or you know uh, Big Sur or whatever. That was where you lived every day. Yeah. Um, what am I missing? Um, there was no. You had you got plenty of sleep. You slept in complete darkness. You
1: probably didn't have a boss that yelled at you every day.
0: Exactly. You, yeah. you certainly didn't have those kind of stressors like, mm-hmm. you know, violence on the news.
1: Nobody <laughs> cared how much money you made. You had what you needed. Yeah.
0: Correct. Correct. I mean, it was a
1: difference between like these punctuated sort of bouts of stress
2: of either like famine, um, environmental exposure. At, or predation from another tribe or an animal or something like that. It, it, where, whereas today the stress is mostly sort of for lack of a better term in our head and it's chronic, it's persistent and right. sort of that, that ratcheting up of our, of our sort of defenses in that way is insidious in a different way. Whereas, you know, the, 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 the threat of predation in, in, in our ancestors time came and went, um, Yes, it, it was a harsh environment. Uh, it was just a different set of environment. But again, the idea is that we evolved to that. We didn't evolve to this sort of chronic, um, low-level um, perturbation of our of our regulatory system. And in, in, and so it's just a different set of diseases, or it's a different set of mm-hmm. of, of, of challenges. Mm. Um, and and we've done well. We've done great with the 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 viruses and the uh, the um, the, the communicable diseases, infectious disease, trauma, acute injuries, um, but it's these things that are, you know, insidious because they're they're low level, and they're just kind of building slowly over time, mm-hmm. uh, and baked into our environment.
0: Right. So you know, I think there's a few um, perspectives on what we can do about that. You know, so one, I think I think to to help enough people. We need some some paradigm changes and some, you know, that really get into our values as a society. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the sort of person to person level, I, I think there's hope in the fact that I see on a on a regular basis that it doesn't take that much. It takes more than nothing, mm-hmm. but it doesn't take that much uh, to have an improvement in some of these kind of diseases. Right. So. Good example is a gentleman that came to me about a year ago. His blood sugar levels had just got him diagnosed in the diabetic level af- after having been pre-diabetic for three or four years. Mm. And in uh, I worked with him for, for six months. He had his blood sugar levels tested before we started, three months in and six months in. By three months in, he, was, uh, he went from the bottom or the low end of diabetic to the top or the high end of, of normal. In three months, and then in the subsequent three months, kept it there. Um, and here's what I like about this story: is he was he wasn't exercising. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a fifty-year-old uh, man, give or take, wasn't exercising. Um, and as a simple way of characterizing um, his way of eating, I would say he uh, I, he ate about uh, think of a spectrum from zero to one hundred percent. real food uh, or 100% uh, processed food, he was probably 75% processed food, 25% real food. Mm -hmm. And so stating it simply, what we were able to get him doing in about a month and then maintaining was going to twice weekly kickboxing classes and we got his way of eating. We flipped that percentage. Yeah. So he, he was about 75% real food and about yeah. 25% processed food. Um, and that was enough to to get him the kind of changes in his blood sugar levels that he was looking for. So now, let, me, he, let me ask you this.
1: My first question is like, okay, he got him to exercise and he ate better. Why couldn't he do that himself?
0: That's a good question. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think... Uh, there's a couple of things here that I'm wondering if make for other shows, you know, one show I think is a show on hunter gatherers. Uh, (laughs) One show I I think is a show on chronic stress, chronic inflammation, chronic disease in general. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe another show is behavior change. Um, but I think I can give some cliff notes on that. Mm -hmm. Um, One is uh, he wasn't scared enough. So, you know, right. So, one thing that got him to take the action of working with me was he had that diabetic diagnosis. Gotcha. So, um, that's only a starting point. I I often say that uh, getting scared gets someone to start taking action, but usually doesn't get someone to keep taking action, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's plenty of people that are getting messages from their physician that their numbers aren't going in the right direction. And most of them are not necessarily taking a lot of action on it, right? Um,
1: Not as much as we wish they would. Not
0: as much as as we wish they would. Um, So one thing that prevents people from taking action is not um, having enough immersion in their values. This is what you hear people talking about in sort of the goals world is their whys. Um, So oftentimes if you can help a person get in touch with, either or both why it's very important for them to be well and why it's very important for them to not be sick that helps um, Now why can't a person get in touch with that on their own? I, I, these are we're getting into some deeper and sort of existential questions I think some of it is because some of that stuff's scary. I think these are questions that primary care doctors ask
1: themselves all the time because we're chronically faced with these, challenges of, um, in the traditional model with diabetes, you get a visit every three months. And, um, I can't tell you the number of times that I had a diabetes visit with someone and their A1c, which is a member of uh, measure of blood sugar was, you know, high. And then three more months, it was still high. And then you talk about stuff and three more months, it was still high. And then you just don't make any headway. And then as a doctor, you're kind of pulling your hair out saying like, what am I doing wrong? Mm. And um, so these are rhetorical questions because if you're making any headway, that's better than a lot of doctors are able to do.
0: Well, and you know, it's it's funny because there are definitely techniques to coaching and those techniques are helpful in evoking – Behavior change, or mm-hmm. and, and behavior. I, I sometimes like to say behavior improve. I almost think that behavior change is uh, isn't a, a strong enough term because we're really looking for behavior improvement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we say behavior change because it sounds less scoldy or less yeah. like we're going to try to make you better or something like that. But oh,
1: yeah, it's interesting. Like, what if you eat better but start smoking? That's technically a change, right?
0: Correct. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And um, but I so there there are are methods that are involved. But from my perspective, uh, a lot of the change happens from the human support process that happens from time spent together, yeah. right? So this same gentleman that I'm referring to um, sounds like it was a slightly different model than the one you were exposed to. But when he got that diagn- the diabetic diagnosis, his physician referred him to a diabetes counselor and he had a meeting, which I think was 20 or 25 minutes He went home with a packet of information and the instructions were, have your A1C tested again in six months. Mm -hmm. And this is not a toot my own horn thing, but this is more of an answer to your question. In that six months, I spent 15 hours, 15 scheduled hours with him. Mm -hmm. And he had the ability to contact me in between Mm -hmm. our scheduled sessions together. Um, I can't explain it all in um, this leads to this leads to this, but uh, to me, there's something about the, the support process that, that makes change and improvement more possible.
1: I totally buy it. I mean, the standard of care within the medical establishment is shifting towards this team-based approach. So when people are diagnosed with a disease, say diabetes, mm-hmm. um, often in these big medical centers, the standard of care is you get on this track where you're assigned a health coach, and or a nutritionist Mm -hmm. and or a dedicated doctor and then you're kind of like in it we're only now starting to move towards that and it seems like it would have been just common sense to like do that from the beginning but it's only within the last couple years that that's become the standard of care and it's only the standard of care at bigger institutions a lot of places don't have the resources to do that but i think it just speaks to your point that it takes time um, from people who care and have some expertise to like help people make these changes
0: Well, and it will be interesting to see how we're collectively able to handle that because the numbers game seems like it will be a hard one to make work without some serious, like I was saying earlier, paradigm shifts, but also some structural shifts in the kinds of professionals that are employed at hospitals, the kinds of services that are covered or not covered by insurance, you know, all these things come into play, Yeah. you know, well, you know, at, at, At the core of this is what's commonly talked about is what, you know, do we value intervention or do we value prevention, right? And I guess when someone has been diagnosed diabetic or even pre-diabetic, we're starting to play in, um, in treatment already. But when the treatment is lifestyle, it's sort of in a gray area, right? There's sort of still a it's not an intervention like uh, the syphilis shot. You, know? mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't make it go away for life in a 15-minute visit. Yeah. It's quite the opposite. <laughs> um, and so uh, that's that's an interesting question for us all to be thinking about.
1: This might be a really interesting time to talk about the preventing diabetes study.
0: Yes, I think um, that's a good one to bring up and um, so let's start there. So. There was a a prospective study done. Uh, This is tens of thousands of people, um, followed for 10 years. And what they did is characterize people as low risk or high risk in six categories. Uh, Essentially, their eating status, their exercise status, their drinking status, their smoking status, their body mass index, and their waist circumference. And what was found is if you were in low risk in those four behaviors eating, exercise, drinking, smoking in over measured over a 10 year period of time, you had an 82% less chance of getting mm. type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. If you also had either low body mass index or low waist circumference. Yeah. That percentage went up to eighty nine percent. So you know it's it's a pretty overwhelming right. piece of data that this that lifestyle works in in keeping us from from getting type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the name of the game is getting ourselves, getting each other, um, to engage in this kind of lifestyle, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, that brings me to the other study that Oren and I have talked about off air, which is really interesting. So they take a group of people that already have elevated blood sugar levels. Uh, I think they would have been characterized as pre-diabetic. And then this is a clinical study. So there's three groups, the intervention group, the two intervention groups, one gets the medication metformin, Mm -hmm. one gets a lifestyle intervention and Mm -hmm. there's a control group. In that study, uh, I think this is, Orin, do you remember, six months?
1: I, it, thought, I, th- I was going to say it was a two-year follow-up okay. um, in terms of like the outcome. I'm not sure how long the um, they did the intervention for.
0: Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. So they did an intervention for some period yeah. of time, and then there was a follow-up for a period yeah. of time beyond that. Yeah. And what they found by the end of that period is that both worked. Both metformin and lifestyle mm-hmm. worked. The... Uh, but lifestyle worked better. Mm-hmm. So uh, metformin, the subjects that took metformin had a 31% reduction in diabetes incidents yeah. and the lifestyle people had a 58% reduction. Oh, wow. Um, but as Warren and I have talked about, that's – you. It's only as good as as getting people to engage in those behaviors, totally. which is right. a little easier to do in a in a controlled study period. Right. I'm assuming. I don't know how exactly how they had that had that going, but people were probably making regular visits to the hospital, probably seeing exercise Someone's physiologists. Someone's paying
2: for it. The sponsor is paying for it. It's mm-hmm. funding that's kind of come from a, a grant or something like that, yeah. versus you know an out of pocket expense or an insurance coverage right so
0: yeah
1: there's more upfront costs yeah. but the fascinating thing and i think the thing we don't fully understand how to calculate yet is the downstream costs because yeah yeah you know it might cost a little bit more to get a dedicated totally. health coach and to like have six months of nutrition classes but the difference there was check my math 12 or 20% difference in the outcome of diabetes, the cost of treating diabetes is astronomically high. Yeah. You know, we're talking about amputations of limbs. We're yeah. talking about dialysis and kidney failure. Wow. Even to prevent a few of those would just save the health system so yeah. much money. Yeah. Not to mention the pain and suffering. Who cares about money? Right. If your relative can live longer and happier, you know, you shouldn't have to put a, you know, uh, a cost, a cost on that. If we have the mect- medical technology to help them do that. So, um, yeah, I think the economics of healthcare is just fascinating. Cause we so often forget, to calculate those downstream yeah. health costs for things. Mm.
0: Yeah. In a society where 10% of the people have a chronic condition and we're talking about one of the chronic condition, 10% of yeah. people have one of, of, of the, the chronic, of conditions, many chronic conditions, right? Yeah. Um, that affects us in in so many ways. And I wasn't aware that, and I was aware broadly that the costs were high, um, but I was thinking it was more related to the length of care, right? Because someone can be under care of medical treatment for diabetes for 40 or 50 years, Yeah. right? But then you're also saying some of the complications are quite expensive Mm -hmm. to treat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, here's
1: the thing about diabetes. It's fascinating from a pathophysiology perspective because it's not the sugars that get you it's the effect of the sugars on your vital systems Mm -hmm. so just having diabetes is an independent risk factor for heart disease as strong as smoking and cholesterol Mm. so alzheimer's
2: do you know anything about that would that be
1: that's that's a really interesting question I don't, I don't know the studies, yeah. but I wouldn't be surprised because be if it's, if it's, 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 it's. So let me say this: um, there are microvascular complications. What that means is like small yeah. blood vessel damage, and you have tons of small blood vessels in your brain, so you could. Well,
2: that's yeah. That's where the, my uh, mind was. Yeah. Like, what are the implications in the clearance of the? Right. And tangles, right.
1: So yeah, it just affects all your your body systems, and things start to break down. And those those are additional diseases that are you know the downstream, you know the the um, upstream cause is the diabetes, but yeah. then the downstream disease pattern is you know pretty predictable: heart disease, um, diabetic infections, kidney
0: disease. Mm-hmm. You know all these things are um, long term complications of diabetes. Well, guys, I think it's time we wrap this one up. As usual, we found a topic that we could talk about for a long time, uh, but our our time is coming to a close. Oren, maybe uh, give us one or two sentences or one or two paragraphs of your sort of key take-home message from today.
1: Yeah. So my first message is um, diabetes is not your fault. So if you're sitting out there and you're listening to this and you have diabetes, Um, you need to find some allies who are going to help you feel your best, not people who are going to make you feel guilty. And so I think that's a really important point. And um, there are three people sitting around this table and many more people out there who are willing to help you um, feel your best. You know, medication and uh, modern medicine are a big part of diabetes treatment. You know, we spent a lot of time talking tonight about how um, eating well and exercising can be good treatments there are medications out there, we didn't have time to get into them today. Your primary care doctor, or your diabetes specialist can talk to you in detail about what medications might be good for you. Um, those medications can add years to people's lives. And um, by no means are we saying that those are bad. We're just saying that we should think at the whole about the whole picture when we're talking about treating, treating diabetes. And um, you want to find someone who can help you kind of understand what that whole picture is. Um, and then the last thing that I would say is, you know, in these discussions, we're talking about a specific disease and today it was diabetes and we're going to have future discussions about, you know, other medical things, but it's important to think about these things in the whole picture. So we spent some time talking tonight, how depression and diabetes can overlap and heart disease and diabetes and, you know, economic hardships. These are, you know, these are all modern struggles and, um, I think they should all be taken into account and. putting together kind of a comprehensive, you know, wellness plan for somebody. So that's what I do with my patients. And I think that really should be the standard of care.
0: Excellent. Zach, how about you?
1: Um,
2: Echoing, you know, what, what, what Oren said, um, and then adding the, you know, the, the environment is, you know, the, the myth of Sisyphus is this, you know, I think it's Greek where this, uh, you know, God is sort of forsaken to pushing a boulder up the hill, um, only to have it fall down repeatedly. And Mm. he's doing this for all of time. Mm. Um, and that feels like the environment that we're living in, in Mm. terms of how we, um, the, the efforts that are required to, um, to, to manage our lifestyle and to make these better decisions, quote, quote unquote. Um, and so Having having help, having a support system, having um, uh, experts in your in your corner um, is not a sign of weakness, right? It's mm. it's just what many of us need, uh, you know, in 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 just the environment that we're living
0: in. Neat. Well, I, I think playing off of that, I I will say that it's an often under-stated element of the environment we evolved in. So in in these uh, hunter-gatherer tribes that you were describing earlier, people were highly collaborative. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was you know it's it's very easy to focus on the the more quote-unquote physical aspects of their lives, but their social aspects really? were were highly collaborative, and uh, I think that's a big factor in in uh, in moving the needle. You know, one reason I know that is because. I'm a nutritionist and exercise physiologist, Mm -hmm. and I will openly say that the amount of nutrition science and exercise physiology that one needs to know in order to be well is very small, right? So-
2: And also the the more you know, doesn't correlate with more motivation or- Not at all. Change, right? You could spend your time, oh, I just, if I just knew this one more factor, that would it doesn't it
0: doesn't work. It that can way. be an obstacle. Yeah. It's another. So talk about our modern environment. What's another thing that's abundant in our modern environment, especially since um, who internet? who invented the internet was it? Uh, <laughs> Al Gore. Since <laughs> Al Gore invented the internet, now we we you know we, so we've had an agricultural revolution, we've had an industrial revolution. You could say right now we're living in an information revolution yeah. or a data revolution or that's whatever what you is. want to call it. Right. There's no absence of information. On how to live well
2: yeah right
0: uh but there's no correlation between the amount of information on living well and the amount of living well that right. happens right so mm-hmm. um and i think to some degree uh this notion of support is is one of those factors i think paradigm shifts including what we value and don't value is is super important and uh so I think we, we can leave it on that note that we don't have all the answers, but hopefully we've we've given our listeners today some, mm-hmm. some things to think about and some inspiration to explore uh, living better, feeling better. So a few notes before we wrap up. Uh, in the episode notes below, you'll find links to our websites where you'll find our contact information. We always welcome your questions about uh, anything we talk about during our shows. Also, feel free to reach out to us and suggest topics for future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, be well.